How do you sedate a patient appropriately? How do you know what kind of sedation they need? How do you know what kind of monitors they need? How do you know what's safely going to get them through that so that they are not over-sedated, but that they're not underdosed so that they have recall? And how do you do these things without causing respiratory depression or harming the patient? I think that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about sedation. We're going to talk about different medications that we use, what settings to use them in, how to use them, um, and how to get patients and everybody safely through a procedure. So anesthesia is dangerous. It, it is dangerous to the human body. We, we give you, I mean, you can call them, I mean, toxic medications, you know, toxic that if they were given in an uncontrolled setting, they could kill a patient. Um, so there is, there is inherent danger with receiving an anesthetic and with having a surgery or a procedure. So, and that's, that's why, you know, we are trained to give these medications in a way that is safe and that gets you through it. So there's different categories of sedation. And what do I mean when I say sedation? Well, so there's different categories of medications. There's sedatives. And sedatives, like, kind of knock you out, or they make you kind of out of it, not knowing what's going on, and they, they anesthetize you. There's, there's anxiolytics, medications called anxiolytics. Uh, anxiolytic means getting rid of anxiety. So there's medications that help to get rid of, like, preoperative anxiety. And then there's pain medications, which are generally like opiates, but other medications. So, and that's called analgesia. So there's, there's sedation, there's anxiolysis, and there's analgesia. Those are the three kind of terms that I'll, I'll be using throughout. So the first type of sedation is no sedation. Not all procedures have to have sedation or any opiates or any analgesia or any anxiolysis at all. Um, there are many, 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 many procedures that can be done without it. But that doesn't mean the patient doesn't need it. Everything needs to be customized towards the patient. So you need to look at what is the procedure. So when you're approaching how to sedate a patient, look at what is this procedure. Are they getting, um, are they getting a cataract? Do they have shoulder dislocation? Are they getting a bone marrow biopsy? Are they getting an open heart surgery? Obviously, these are very, very different things. So you look at what, is, what procedure are they getting. And then you look at the, the patient's medical status. How, are they healthy? Are they in a healthy state? Are they, did they just walk in off the street? Or have they been in the ICU for three weeks? Have they been in the medical ward? Do they have diabetic ketoacidosis? What, what is their status? And that's something called what we call the ASA physical status, the American Society of Anesthesiologists, ASA status. And that helps to categorize how sick a patient is. So that is, is hugely, goes hugely into consideration. Because just for example, so let's say there's a patient walking off the street, uh, a healthy young woman who walks off the street that is getting an, an ortho procedure. I can send that patient out to sleep with a big dose of propofol safely. But did you know that propofol is an extremely dangerous medication? It's very, very dangerous. The reason is it drops everybody's blood pressure when you give it to them. It, it dilates your blood vessels. It's a side effect. It's, an, it's like an unwanted side effect of propofol. So a healthy young woman, it's not going to, her, her, her physiology will be able to compensate for that, that big uh, dose of propofol that I gave them, that I gave her. No problem. So I know I can give her, in fact, I would over, I would give her a lot because young yeah, a young person often needs more. So I would give that person a lot, uh, like, you know, 250 milligrams, 300 milligrams, depending on their weight and age. Now, if I gave that, so let's take another patient, a patient in the ICU who's on norepinephrine, epinephrine, and vasopressin, and they're in shock, and they need to come down to the operating room because they need, they, their, their bowel is dying, and it uh, needs to be resected or it's going to kill them. If I gave that same dose of propofol to that patient, it would, it would probably kill them. Um, so it's all about what is the patient's medical status. This is extremely important as, as you approach, you know, pre, 
operative assessment. And then what is the appropriateness? So, so you look at those things. What is their medical status? You look at their airway, because that also has a lot to do with how you're going to sedate someone. And what I mean by airway is you look at their teeth, you look at their tongue, you have them open up their mouth, you look at the back of their throat, you look at what is their neck circumference, does it look like they might have a difficult airway, do they have obstructive sleep apnea, a history of that, do they use a CPAP at home? So if someone has a straightforward airway, you might, be, you might lean towards, oh, maybe I don't need to put a breathing tube in for this patient. Maybe I can just lightly sedate them and, and the surgeon or the proceduralist will give them a little local anesthetic and they'll be fine. So that goes into consideration. And that, that, that goes into the next point is what is the appropriateness of, of the sedation level? Do they need to be deeply sedated? Can they just be moderately sedated? Um, can they lie motionless in a position for the procedure without being sedated? Are they able to cooperate? Is it someone, <clears throat> do you have a child that can't cooperate, that can't be redirected? Or do you have someone that um, is, has uh, autistic disorder and they're, they're, not be able, they're not able to cooperate, but they're otherwise healthy and they're an adult. All of these things are, are extremely important. And then what are the patient's expectations? What do they want? Are they extremely anxious? Do they, do they take Xanax just to get in an elevator? Like, is that their baseline generalized anxiety disorder? All of these things need to, need to go into consideration when you approach how to sedate a patient. And then when you figure out how you want to sedate them, which we're going to talk about, you want to know, how, am I, how do I need to monitor this patient? Typically, we say, oh, that we do ASA standard monitors. ASA is the American Society for Anesthesiologists. ASA is <clears throat> this guideline so of monitoring someone's vital signs. So that includes pulse oximetry. You put that probe on their finger to see what their oxygen content or their saturation, I should say, of their, in their blood. A blood pressure cuff to see what their blood pressure is throughout. Uh, EKG rhythm, tele uh, telemetry to see what their, their heart rhythm and what their heart rate is throughout. And then very, very important is end tidal carbon dioxide. Monitoring every single breath that they're breathing back at you is carbon dioxide. Because if, if someone is breathing back carbon dioxide to you, you know that they're, that they're breathing. There's a difference between oxygenation and ventilation. These are two different things. Oxygenation is how is, is oxygen getting through the lungs and getting into the bloodstream. Ventilation is are they able to eliminate carbon dioxide in and out of their lungs. And if you're not monitoring someone's carbon dioxide, they actually could be going south really quick, even if their oxygen saturation is fine. These are two, two very different things. So there are different categories of how deeply someone is sedated. The first sed category of sedation is none, zero, no sedation whatsoever. Not every procedure needs a sedative or a pain medication. There's many, many, many procedures that don't need these things. Um, and oftentimes that is the surgeon's judgment call, the proceduralist's judgment call, like, oh, I can do this, just do this in my clinic. So someone that, so if it's not very painful or it can be controlled with local anesthetic, and it's also not dangerous to have, to have them not sedated, someone doesn't, doesn't have to have sedation. Someone can choose to not have an anesthesiologist, depending, depending on the case, and I can get a little more into that. So there's, so there's no sedation. The next, the next one up from that is called, we call it nurse sedation where a, a sedation nurse that's been trained to give sedatives is the one that is administering the sedatives and monitoring your vitals. Um, in this type of anesthetic, we typically only give opiates and benzos. The, you definitely do, a, a sedation nurse does not give propofol and should not give propofol because propofol um, can quickly lead to apnea. Someone, someone stop, stopping breathing and they may need rescue measures to get them back. Now, benzos and opiates together can also cause that as well. Um, 
but that's why it's kind of lighter sedation. The goal is to keep the patients breathing on their own and even to be, they can, even, they can be awake, they can be talking um, during a procedure. An example of this is like a cataract surgery where um, you know, an ophthalmologist goes in and they, they fix your cataract and, and I supervise just these procedures like this all the time with, and I never go into the room. I, I don't have to. I'm supervising a lot of other cases at the time as well. But a nurse is giving, giving benzos, usually like midazolam and opiates like fentanyl to a patient to get them comfortable. The nurse, the, and then the ophthalmologist then numbs up the eye and, and works. And this works for like 99% of the patients. Um, so that's nurse sedation. The next one we call moderate anesthesia care. We call it a MAC, MAC, moderate anesthesia care. This is where you now require an anesthesia provider, whether it's an anesthesiologist in that room or a nurse anesthetist in that room. And moderate anesthesia care is, it's similar to nurse sedation, but it's just a little deeper. But it's not a general anesthetic. They don't, they're not totally under. During moderate anesthesia care, a patient should typically still be able to respond to verbal stimulus. You say, hey, how are you doing? And they say, I'm doing okay. That's still moderate anesthesia care. But oftentimes, they're, now we're giving them propofol. And, we're, and maybe we're going up on our doses, and we have and we have an anesthesia machine right there if we need to convert to a general anesthetic right away. Um, and then deeper from that, the next one from that is a general anesthetic where someone is completely under, completely, they're totally out of it, and typically they have a breathing tube. Technically, technically, a general anesthesia doesn't mean a breathing tube. Um, that's a little too nuanced and too boring to to really tease apart. Um, so that's so. There's these. I'll just sum it up in these four ways of sedating someone: no sedation, nurse sedation, MAC, moderate anesthesia care, and general anesthesia. Now, all of these settings, patients should their vitals should be monitored. Their vitals should be monitored. I'm going to just take a quick little segue into the Redondo Vot case. Okay, I, I know I've mentioned a lot of my TikTok and here on the podcast a couple times. So, <clears throat> Redondo Vot was a nurse in uh, Virginia who accidentally gave a paralytic medication over midazolam to a patient that was going to get a, a scan. Um, and that, that paralytic dose, they, the patient was given that dose, and the patient went into the scanner, and they suffered a brain injury probably from not being able to breathe because they were paralyzed. That patient was not monitored. And this is my, the, the whole crux of this thing for me is that patient wasn't monitored, meaning they, they, their vitals weren't monitored. The patient wasn't, didn't have a pulse ox going on. Anytime someone is going to get a benzo, which was the plan with this patient, they should be monitored. If that patient had been monitored, the patient very, very likely would not have died. Why? Because it would have been detected that the patient's oxygen saturation was going down, 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 down. They would have pulled the patient out and resuscitated the patient right away and gotten the patient back if, you know, if they had suffered respiratory cardiac arrest. So patients need to be monitored. And so for that reason, I don't, Redonda Vought, I don't believe that she should be criminalized. That shouldn't have been even brought to, uh, to court because she was not fully responsible for that patient's death. The system was, was ultimately responsible. She made an egregious error. That was a big, big problem. And um, I think she had her license revoked, which, which that's debatable. I, I do agree with that. That's, that's fine. But to criminalize her for doing that and to put the responsibility only on her is, is absurd, in my opinion. Fortunately, she was the judge who sentenced her clearly understood the circumstances and gave her three years probation and no jail time. So, which I was very happy about. Anyway, let's go, I digress back from that. Um, <clears throat> so patients need to be monitored. I mean, you need to monitor patients with what, what I said before, ASA standard monitors. Remember, that's pulse ox, a blood pressure cuff, 
telemetry and uh, end tidal carbon dioxide. So those monitors need to be in place if you're going to do this. So let's talk about a couple different um, procedures. Let's start with, we talked about cataract, right? So someone who gets a cataract, that can be done under nurse sedation. You give them like you know, one or two of midazolam, 50 mics of fentanyl, and that chills them out. You know, that's going to chill out the average person, and they'll be able to get that procedure done well. And that nurse is sitting there, and they can redose appropriately. And that nurse is trained to do that safely. However, someone can come in, and, and I see this all the time, and they're going, to get her, they're going to get their cataract taken care of, and they ate like an hour before, which that's an automatic cancel the case. Oh, so by the way, why don't we want you to eat? Well, anytime you're even, you get any sort of sedative, you could become too relaxed, your, your esophagus could relax, and you could aspirate gastric contacts into your lungs, which could be extremely dangerous and deadly. So, you know, and it happens all the time. People forget, and that's fine. People forget, it's fine. Um, but I see it, you know, someone with cataract surgery, they'll come in and they're like, hey, oh, I ate an hour ago. And I'll be like, well, we got to delay your case, you know, six to eight hours or for t- t- tomorrow. And sometimes that person will be like, you know what, I don't even need, I don't need sedation. Just take me back there and the surgeon will know my eye. I'll just be wide awake. And you know what we say to that? Okay, great. That's, that's fine. That's fine. So being adjusted, you know, customizing to what the patient wants. And I think that's a great solution. If the patient is okay with that, okay with having surgery on their eyeball that is numbed up, and they're comfortable with that, they're not going to get anxious, um, and, and they don't want the anesthetic, and, hey, they won't even have to pay for an anesthetic. So that's great. I say, fantastic. Come on back. Let's get it done for you. You know, your, your ophthalmologist is here waiting. So that's great. And then the next, but the next person that maybe they ate an hour before, there is no way they can have that procedure without having sedation. They, they, will, they will, you know, have a panic attack on the table, and you can't have that, right? Because what did I say before? You have to assess, is a patient willing to stay still? A patient must stay still if you're operating on their eyeball, right? So it's all, everything is just customizable to what's going on with the patient. Let's talk about a different procedure. Let's talk about a bone marrow biopsy. So what is a bone marrow biopsy? So this is someone who, so often people need a bone marrow biopsy if they have things like leukemia or myelodysplastic syndrome or multiple myeloma, many, many blood, blood disorders, um, blood cancers. So a bone marrow biopsy helps to diagnose those things. And so what's a bone marrow biopsy? It's a, a giant needle, big needle, that goes into your, the side of your hip. It's, a, it's like a five-minute procedure. Big needle goes in your hip, and it draws out bone marrow, and then that gets sent off to the lab. It takes two seconds. <clears throat> so, this is an, so this is an interesting procedure, right? Number one, you don't have to do this with sedation. The patient, a patient can be like, I, I'm good. I don't need this. However, it's painful. Um, so if you are, need a bone marrow biopsy, I recommend you go to a place that needs sedation because I've talked to lots of patients that have had it without, and they're like, I will never do it again because it's painful. It's a huge needle that goes in. I mean, it's painful, um, and, it, and it aches afterwards. So with this, though, it's really brief, right? This is a brief procedure. It's like five minutes. A cataract, you know, it can take 45 minutes, hour, hour and a half. And so you have to think of the half-life of, of drugs. This is a huge part of, the, of practice anesthesia. How long do uh, medications stay in your system? And all anesthetists and anesthesiologists, we know this like the back of our hand. We know exactly how long medications are going to linger in your, in your system. So a benzo and fentanyl, the, 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 the lingering effects will stay um, for quite a while. Now, the immediate effect might wear off in an hour or two, um, but the, the drug half-life will stay around for quite a bit. So for a bone marrow biopsy, yeah, you could give fentanyl and midazolam. Um, however, it may not sedate that person enough because it's painful. It's a quick, painful, just one-off procedure, and then you're done. 
Whereas the cataract is like, you know, 45 minutes, as I said, the eye is numb. It's not that painful. It's just kind of anxiety inducing because someone's working on your eyeball. Whereas the bone marrow biopsy, it's like, ah, it's painful. So just giving some fentanyl and midazolam, <clears throat> it may not sedate them enough and they may feel the pain. And so it may not even, so just some fentanyl and midazolam may not accomplish what you need for that patient. And then you have the lingering effects, effects of fentanyl and midazolam. That patient is staying in the post-operative care unit for maybe too longer. And then they're at home and they're, they can be groggy for, for a while. So we can give something else. You can just give propofol for this. You can just give a push, a push of propofol, a low-dose push of propofol to a patient like this. Propofol has a very quick on and off. It is metabolized by the liver almost as quickly as it enters the liver. It doesn't, like, recirculate around and around. It's, it's a quick on, quick off, just a few minutes. So literally just giving a patient this, like, a bolus of propofol, just and they're good to go. That's all they need. They wake up and they get out. It's a, it's a very nice way of doing things. Same with, like, a cardioversion. Say, say someone has atrial fibrillation, but the, and they're stable, and they need a shock to the chest to get them out of that rhythm. This is a stable rhythm that's very common. It's not an emergency. You're doing it electively. I... I, I uh, reach for propofol all the time because what is what is the procedure? It's a shock to the chest. That's the procedure, and I'm performing the procedure. In this case, I'm the I'm sedating the patient and I'm performing the procedure, which is just pushing a button on the defibrillator. But <clears throat> it's just a, it's a short procedure, right? It's a one second procedure. It's a press a button that shocks their chest. They don't need fentanyl and midazolam. That's going to hang around too long. You just give them a push of, of propofol. I give them a push. I say, hey, how you doing? They're knocked out. They're still breathing on their own. I don't give them too much so that they go apneic and not breathe. And then I shock their chest. They wake up. Hopefully, I got them out of the rhythm, not always, and they're good to go. So again, everything is relative. Now, let's take something like open-heart surgery. Say someone needs a new aortic valve. So a surgeon is going to literally take a saw to their sternum, open up, crack their, their sternum open, you know, slice into their heart and replace that valve. Obviously, that needs to be a general anesthesia. That person needs to be completely sedated and under with many, many different types of sedatives um, that makes up that they're under. So, you know, we've got the whole spectrum and of, of different sedatives, when to use them and, uh, you know, under what circumstances and what kind of, what types of patients and what kind of comorbidities they have that dictate what you use. Now let's quickly delve into the different types of medications. Let's just talk more specifically about them. And let's start with benzodiazepines. So benzos are, they are usually for anxiolysis, right? For anxiety. So like Xanax, like the pill that you take, that's a that's an alprazolam that is a benzo. So there's a, this is a large family of medications. Diazepam, midazolam, um, uh, lorazepam. There's, there's, there's a whole range here. Now, in the anesthesia world, we'll, the IV benzos that we typically use, in the United States at least, are midazolam and, and lorazepam, also called Versed and Ativan. Versed, those are the generic names. I'll try to, or sorry, the drug names, the brand names, geez. Uh, but I'll try to use the generic ma- names as much as possible. So midazolam, it's it's a short-acting benzo, and it gives it it usually makes you feel a couple drinks deep if we give it to you before a, an operation. And if patients are anxious and that if that anxiety is getting way of their experience and it's getting way of their care, I quickly will give them to them. I always give the p- patients the options up front. If everybody wants that, I give it to them with, without exception. Um, so it, it has sedative qualities as well. It also has amnestic qualities, meaning it can give amnesia. It can give anterograde amnesia. So you, it can make people forget the things that happen after they take it. Um, it does not have analgesic effects, midazolam, benzos. They, they don't provide pain relief. So that's why I was saying with a bone marrow biopsy, just giving some midazolam is not enough. They're not going to have pain relief. 
may, they may not remember the procedure as well, but still, they, it's not going to take care of their pain. So midazolam and benzos can potentiate the effects of other sedatives and opiates. So they can work synergistically, and it can cause respiratory depression, particularly with opiates or something like propofol. So it must be given with caution and with someone that's experienced. The onset of midazolam is about one to three minutes. I mean, pretty quick, someone's going to feel pretty good. And the half-life is about four hours. Now, the therapeutic effect may wear off after four hours, but the half-life of it in the, in the bloodstream is going to be about four hours. Um, it's generally dosed like 0.5 milligrams at the low end, up to, you know, one milligram, two milligrams. I usually don't give or more than two milligrams at a basic preoperative dose. So it's not used, midazolam is not used, or benzos are not used as a primary sedative for long, for longer cases, because you can't keep repeating the doses because you'll, you can sedate them and, and their breathing can go down and then you have other problems. So it's used in conjunction with other things. Uh, ben, uh, benzos have a reversal agent called flumazenil. So if someone gets too sedative, sedative you can give flumazenil as an antidote. It will reverse that. Um, there's another, it's a new type of benzo. It's called remimazolam. This, just, this was approved by the FDA in 2020. It's a, it's a short-acting benzo, intravenous. It can be given as, you know, as, a, as a push or a bolus. It has a unique metabolism. Um, it, it's a very, very fast recovery because its metabolism is not dependent on the liver like, like midazolam or Ativan. Um, you give a push of this, and it is metabolized in the bloodstream itself. The bloodstream itself metabolizes it. So it has a very quick offset. It's a similar drug metabolism as remifentanil, if you're familiar with that. It's an ester hydrolysis in the, in the blood. I have not used this medication yet myself. Uh, I, I know I have colleagues and other people that are using it and, and are having good, they, they do like it because it's, it's, it's quick. For a quick procedure, you just give it, boom, the, the, the patient's sedated, they wake up quick, they go home, everyone's happy. All right, now let's talk about propofol. Propofol acts fast, it's rapid. So propofol is not a benzo, it's not an opiate. It's its own drug. It's, it works on the GABA receptor. Um, it's its own kind of class of medication. It acts fast, it can be short acting, it's, it's sedative, it's hypnotic. It does provide some amnesia, and it also has anti-emetic properties, meaning uh, anti-emetic means uh, it helps with nausea. So if you have an a anesthetic that's just giving propofol, your, your likelihood of getting nauseous is actually really low. Again, propofol does not provide analgesia. It is not a pain medication. It is a sedative. It is widely, widely used in many, many um, anesthetics. And as I said before, it, it can drop people's blood pressure. So, and it, can make, it definitely makes people, people stop breathing. So those two reasons make it a very dangerous medication. And if it's not given carefully and thoughtfully, it can kill patients. This can be a deadly medication. In fact, that's, this is the drug that killed Michael Jackson. It was used inappropriately, and he died. And that's because propofol has a narrow therapeutic window. Uh, patients rapidly transition to deeper levels of sedation. And there's no reversal agent for it, um, which it has a fast offset as well. So... It's not the biggest still in the world. Um, it causes pain on injection in most of the people that get it, and that's because it's emulsified in a lipid. Um, IV lidocaine can help with that that we give it that we give alongside with it sometimes. Okay, and now moving on to opiates. Opiates are its own, obviously, class of drug, and there's many different types of opiates. Opiates are a part of sedation, um, and they're used in many different things. Uh, typical IV opiates that we use are fentanyl. They have, a, they have a fast onset, and they have a pretty fast offset. You typically start with doses of 25 mics, and you can go from there, 50 mics, um, 100 mics at a time sometimes. The duration of action is usually 30 to 60 minutes. Um, and on, on the onset, it, you know, a patient, you can, you can see the onset within 60 to 90 seconds. Um, so there's, there's fentanyl, 
that can be used for many different reasons, as I said. And then there's remifentanil, which I mentioned earlier. That's an ultra-short-acting opiate, very fast onset, 16 to 90 seconds, and it has a very quick half-time um, in the bloodstream, something called a context-sensitive half-time, which if you know what I'm talking about, you know. I won't go into detail about that. Too boring. But it's only like pff, eight minutes. So if you have someone on an infusion of remifentanil for hours and hours and hours, you turn that off, and in like eight minutes, it's out of the patient's system. Whereas other medications like propofol and things, they build up in the tissues, and they stay, and they linger, and they, they you know, the fat tissue and muscle tissue acts as a reservoir for those medications, whereas remifentanil, not. That's why it's a very highly useful medication. You start someone on a remifentanil drip, they're going to be apneic. This is for general anesthesia, right? You're not using remifentanil for, for like, nurse sedation, of course. Um, they're going to be apneic, and, it, and it, it, it effectively acts as a paralytic. It doesn't technically paralyze the body, but patient, a patient's body is not moving if you have someone on an infusion like this. You usually start at like 0.1 micrograms per kilogram per minute, and you can up-titrate from there. There's a lot of different other opiates in, in anesthesia world that we use. Hydromorphone, which is called Dilaudid, typically give that for post-op pain. Methadone IV, you can give that up front for, Medicaid, for, for uh, very painful operations. Um, Meperidine or Demerol, which is also called, helps with post-op shivering. It can help with some analgesia, not a whole lot. And, of course, there's morphine, which is not really used much anymore because it, it can cause histamine release. It can cause itchiness. It can cause nausea, like our other opiates. All opiates can cause nausea. Uh, and it's just there's just better medications. I, I can't remember the last time I prescribed morphine to anybody. It's not that good of a medication. Okay, and then you have ketamine. This, is, this, this produces what we call a dissociative state, and this is accompanied by amnesia. And the good thing about ketamine is it provides analgesia as well with no or minimal respiratory depression. Let me repeat that. Ketamine is a fantastic drug because it provides sedation, amnesia, analgesia without respiratory depression. That is a fantastic profile for, for an anesthetic. I mean, to review, what do benzos do? Sedation, anxiolysis, but they don't provide analgesia, and they uh, can cause respiratory depression. Opiates, analgesia, obviously, respiratory depression, big time, sedation, and they linger around. Propofol, yes, it sedates, respiratory depression. Um, but ketamine doesn't, it, it provides amnesia and sedation without respiratory depression, and it's an analgesic. It treats pain as well. So it's really, it is a combination of really desirable effects all in one package. Um, it has a rapid onset and a, and a pretty short duration of action. It's like 10 to 20 minutes of, you know, the duration of action. And it has a half-life of um, like two to three hours. Um, so this is a very effective medication. So like say someone, say like a 12-year-old comes in with a dislocated shoulder and it needs to be reduced in the emergency department. You can just give, the, the, give that patient a, a bolus of ketamine. It, it knocks them out. They're breathing on their own. They don't need a breathing tube. They're out of it. It's giving them pain control enough that they can do the procedure with an orthopod, orthopedic, you know, surgeon or an emergency department surgeon. I think they can do it sometimes. They reduce the joint, and then it clears, and then they're awake, and then they're ready to go, and they don't actually need surgery. It's an incredibly versatile med medication. I use it all the time. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It, it really it does have some side effects. Um, it can cause, well, it can be unpleasant. Some people don't like the dissociative effects. It can cause hallucinations that can be very unpleasant for people, bad dreams. Um, it can maybe increase intracranial pressure in, in patients that have traumatic brain injury. It's generally recommended to avoid it in that. It can also unmask uh, myocardial, like respiratory, uh, myocardial depression in some patients. I think that's kind of a theoretical thing. I haven't witnessed that myself, but it's a very good medication. Oh, and I forgot to mention, ketamine doesn't drop someone's blood pressure like, like propofol can. So again, it's just it's a, so it's a hemodynamically stable medication. It's fantastic. 
And then you have dexmedetomidine, which is also called Presidex in the United States. This is its own class of medication. It's what we call an alpha-2 agonist. It's a sedative, it provides anxiolysis, and it can provide analgesia. So it's kind of like ketamine, it's kind of a combo package. Um, you, can, you can give a bolus dose of this, but it can cause bradycardia, low heart rate, and low blood pressure. So it's generally used as a, in a, as a infusion. It can be used in the ICU, it can use, be used in the OR. It can be used for uh, moderate anesthesia care sedation, where someone's kind of awake but, uh, to, and talking to you, but you have this going on in the background. Um, so it's a, it is a versatile med medication that is used a lot. It's a, it has a lot of, a lot of great um, benefits. Some downsides of it is it has a slower, kind of a slower onset of action. You start the infusion, it could take up to 15 minutes before that patient even feels it. Um, and then, as I said, it, caused, it can cause low heart rate and low blood pressure, and it can kind of linger around for a while, um, uh, you know, prolonged sedation. All right, and then what's, what's another sedative that we use? Anesthetic gas. We call it volatile anesthetics. So gases that we put through the breathing tube. So uh, if you're getting an anesthetic gas, that's a general anesthesia, right? You're not getting it through moderate anesthesia care, what we call MAC, or nurse sedation. Um, and that's, that's delivered through an anesthetic machine. And there's different types of, of ga volatile gases. We usually, in the United States, at least we use sevaflurane, isoflurane, and desflurane. And these, uh, these medications have different... Um, Onsets, they, they all have fast onsets. You start someone on a gas, and it's going to sedate them pretty quick, like under a minute. And then they can linger around because that gas can also, again, store in the, uh, it can store in the, in the muscle tissue and the fat tissue. And as, if you turn off the anesthetic gas, that leaches back out, goes back in the bloodstream, goes back in the brain, so it can linger around. So you ha we have to, as, anesthesi as anesthesia providers, we have to titrate these medications and turn them off at appropriate times to make sure patients wake up in a, in, in, in a good, in an in a appropriate time. Um, and then we also have nitrous oxide as an adjunct that we do use as well. Um, it has its uses. It's limited. Um, that's called that's laughing gas, nitrous oxide. Anyway, so that's just kind of a primer of sedatives, when to use them. You know, there's a lot of things that go into the decision. And anesthetists and anesthesiologists are making these decisions all day long, constantly, all day long, all day long, all day long right? This is part of our job, assessing what is safe for a patient. Um, get them through whatever the procedures are safely, make sure that they are uh, comfortable, that they um, don't experience pain, and that they come through the procedure, uh, you know, as healthy as they were when they, when they went in. So it's a big part of our job. It's a big topic. I can do more on this, um, but I think I'll kind of wrap up that discussion. All right, we're going to switch gears here. I got into kind of my social segment. Um, uh, this, is, uh, this is what I do. I reel you in with medical information, and then I, in, I indoctrinate you with my... Uh, my social views. Uh, well, someone could, you know, you could accuse me of being a demagogue for doing that, right? But I don't think I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I'm a demagogue. I don't think I have like call to action, and I don't tell you to just trust in me. I think demagogues, um, they try. I think demagoguery is like trying to destroy the conventional wisdom or, or the way of doing things, and then trying to confuse everybody, and then being and then be like the only the answer is trust in me. Anyway. Okay, whatever, I digress. Uh, we're going to do a book discussion here. I'm going to talk about a very important book that I think I read uh, like two years ago. It's a very, very good book. Um, and it's about monopolization. So if you listen to all my content a lot, you know I harp on ideology. I think ideology is bad. I think I think being an acolyte of ideology and being like, oh, this is the way to do things is, is destructive. I think that's one of the reasons that we're so divided is because we all stack our, ideal, our identity along with ideologies, and then there's no crosstalk between people anymore, and divisions happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't like ideology. I don't like partisanship. I don't like 
uh, allegiance to political parties, I think all of this is, is bad. We're, we are easily manipulated if we align ourselves with an ideology, like, like remarkably easily manipulated uh, without even realizing it. So, and I think one thing that actually can unite the United States and Western countries, when, you know, we're seeing a shift more towards author authoritarian leaning um, political parties is a uh, monopolize mono breaking up monopolies. Uh, the markets are incredibly monopolized, unbelievably monopolized, and corporate power is like a behemoth and is influencing our politics, and the court system thinks that, that corporations are people and that they should have free, free that their money, that their enormous money is free speech. So mon monopolize, monopolies are a competing form of government. It's basically just constant private power that's concentrating that gets into the public world, and it's taking over things. So I think being anti-monopolized, anti-monopoly, is a way to unite both political parties because I think we all hate monopoly power. We all hate it. So the, the book I'm going to recommend is really deals with this, and I highly, highly recommend this book. It's called Goliath, The 100-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. It's by Matt Stoller. Matt Stoller is a very smart man. I follow him on Twitter, and I read his, I read his newsletter often. He's extremely intelligent and very well-informed and has a great take on stuff. So, so just kind of backing up discussing this book, um, the, this book goes over like a sweeping history from the last 100 years of monopolistic powers that have pitted themselves against the average American person. And it's told through great detail, detail with a lot of accuracy and with like a lot of passion, but with a lot of temperance, you know, rarely do I read a book that is so thoroughly demonstrates current problems through history. And then from that history provides a roadmap, a roadmap out of the current concentration of power in which we live. Stoller starts this history with a question. I, I remember this well. He starts the book out. Why would a bunch of well-meaning technocrats in the form of the Obama administration bail out the very banks that caused a financial crisis? Given the chance, why would they decide to do the exact opposite of the New Deal era and double down on the very system that created the crisis? The answer to this question requires delving back 100 years and taking us back to Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt branded himself as anti-monopolistic but actually oversaw monopoly formation and then presided over it. Wilson, his successor, was actually truly anti-monopolistic. Wilson passed the first laws that benefited the workers, the eight-hour workday, child labor laws. He created the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and he passed the Clayton Act, which stopped large mergers from happening. The next in line, Harding, took a totally different approach. While, while Harding may not have had his direct effect on monopolization, his Secretary of Treasury, Andrew Mellon, sure did. This book goes a lot into Andrew Mellon. He played a big, big role in monopolization. He was a former private banker who likely bribed Harding for the, for the role of being the Secretary of Treasury. He, Mellon, would go on to serve as Secretary of Treasury for three more presidents. Mellon owned enormous monopolies, including ownership in over 70 companies. He owned Alcoa, which was an aluminum company that had 100% of the aluminum market. Mellon was, in fact, good friends with Mussolini, a man he admired for being anti-communist and who fused together government and business. Where Mussolini used murder and dictatorship for his mergers, Mellon had to actually appeal to voters. Mellon was impeached by Congressman Wright Patman, Patman serves as a key figure in this book. He is lauded by the author as being one of the most anti-monopolistic watchdogs in American history. The, the, the Depression happened as the markets collapsed, 
And then a wave of bank defaults soared through Europe and the United States, which stopped lending and seized funds. Unemployment went from 2% to 25%. FDR won over Hoover in a landslide. A reckoning occurred during this time for the monopolists. The famous Pecora hearings are reviewed here, uh, which were aimed at rooting out the monopolists, including Andrew Mellon, and acted as a referendum on a disaster of a financial system that, that was imposed. New Deal policies then dramatically decreased the unemployment rate and increased housing in the forms of the HOLC and the FHA, which the HOLC, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, and the FHA, the Federal Housing Act, they had racist policies, a topic for another book, which is The Color of Law by, by uh, Rothenstein, which is an amazing book. Uh, but anyway, the New Deal clearly elevated the economic, economic rights of the average American and created a stable foundation on which the civil rights were then built. With the decentralization of banking and other Keynesian moves, monopoly power was greatly weakened in the New Deal eras. But then changes in the zeitgeist started to occur in the 1960s and really culminated in the 1970s. On the left, you had the emergence of economic technocrats like Galbraith, who preached the countervailing forces method or, or theory in which monopolies were perfectly sound because the market will naturally create forces that will oppose monopolies. This was a highly influential idea to baby boomer liberals in particular. And then, of course, on the right, you have the Chicago School of Economics finding fertile scientific ground, disseminating their neoliberal ideas through the courts and politics in the form of Scalia and, and Goldwater. The Chicago School uh, fundamentally changed rhetoric and language, redefining freedom as unfettered business. The, the, the word monopoly began to refer to union and government control, and that corporations were the protector of this newly branded freedom. A fetishizing of meritocracy occurred on both the left and the right, which helped to create a victimization of businesses. It's no wonder that someone like Milton Friedman could insinuate that a business unable to discriminate based on, right, on, on race was an infringement of freedom. Galbraith and the Chicago, and Chicago school loathed one another, but their philosophies were in sync. Wealth and power needed to be concentrated into educated technocrats. Despite Barry Goldwater's presidential failure, the winds were already changing at this time. The business roundtable with the, the famous Powell memo, if you're familiar, as a, as a manifesto, um, the business roundtable sought to inject businesses into, business into politics. Riston created CDs, which formed a parallel banking system, which then held the Fed hostage to do anything because it would induce a bank run. Jimmy Carter was actually going to fire all the air traffic controllers anyway before Reagan famously actually did that, a move that supposedly heralded in the return of neoliberalism. Nader was around and uh, close with the philosophies of Patman and, and, and Brandeis, but seemed more concerned with consumer protection. The Consumer um, Good Pricing Act screwed over small businesses and helped predatory pricing, which liberals really bought into. Democracy was beginning to be seen as, an in, as inefficient by both sides of the political party, and a huge wage, uh, wave of mergers took over in the 1980s. And then the politics of affluence really started to reign during that time. Ronald Reagan put four neoliberal judges on the court, including Scalia. Junk bonds changed corporate structure. Leveraged buyouts became normalized and completely financialized the system, further concentrating wealth. The opposing Democrats at this time were anti-populist themselves. Bill Clinton won on a populist movement, but with no mention of antitrust. Clinton deeply entrenched more of Reagan's principles. Ronald, uh, Clinton was a great Republican. He coddled corporate interests and attacked banking restrictions by repealing Glass-Steagall and signing in NAFTA. 
an agreement that helped corporations find cheaper labor elsewhere. Hillary Clinton sat on the board of Walmart. Clinton appointed pro-monopoly judges Breyer and RBJ, both of whom signed a Scalia opinion that posited that the possession of monopolization was not illegal and it produced economic growth. Section 230, famously, the, the, the Internet oversight occurred in the 90s, opened up a wave of, of tech giants to take control, which has huge consequences today. And then Bush Jr. did even less than Clinton about monopoly power, ushering in more powerful monopolies, basically running a war profiteering outfit full on with contractors upon sub, above, above more subcontractors. Bush and Cheney are basically war profiteers. When the Lehman Brothers filled, filed bankruptcy in 2007, it spurred a bank run. There were five to seven trillion dollars in unpaid mortgages just flapping in the wind. The culture had changed so much that there was no anti-populist outcry from the Democrat Party when Obama bailed out the banks. This is because the Democratic Party has become the corporate technocratic wonk party full of professional elites. Finance has become sacrosanct to all. The Democratic Party is the party of Andrew Mellon, basically. It's no wonder we have the largest tech companies running every part of our lives. In 2016, Google and Facebook took 60% of all online ad revenue in America, which is the largest source of advertising money. Google has 90% of the search and ad market and can track users across 80% of websites. Facebook has 70% of social network trafficking. Two-thirds of Americans get their news on social media. Amazon is the epitome of monopolization, operating on the very dominant market that it owns. As a consequence, America is now a news desert. The fallout from the tech monopolization is unspeakable and, and beyond the, the scope of, of what you even want to talk about with this, with this review. What we learn <clears throat> is that the Obama-era bailouts were an attempt to stop New Deal regulations, not to stop a depression. The liberal technocrats had been indoctrinated, indoctrinated by liberal corporate thinking of Galbraith, which was copied and pasted once again from Clinton policy. The Democrat Party ceased to be the party of the people around the 1980s with the resounding election of Ronald Reagan. The two parties have become two sides of the same neoliberal coin. When Obama bailed out the banks, there was no established democratic outcry because of the populist movement didn't exist anymore. Neither party can be trusted to put the power back in the hands of the people. And that is what populism actually is. Populism is average people knowing exactly what is good for them. I'm talking about the populism of like the 1890s, not of the 2000, not of 2016. Populism is traditionally is rejecting the concentration of wealth and power. Populism is decrying plutocracy, oligarchy, monopoly, and the corporate infiltration into governance. Populism is not perfect because average people are not perfect, but it at least wrestles power away from the liberal elite, the corporate elite, and the conservative corporate fascism in which we live. So what should we do? Learn. Don't fall back into elitism and technocracy. Steer clear of corporate fascism. We have created and recreated ourselves many times over, and we must do it again. The question is not if commerce is good. It's who will control the commerce and the power of the country. America is a battle and a struggle for justice, and we choose who wins. We create this world. So this book is called Goliath, the 100-year war between monopoly power and democracy by Matt Stoller. If you want to understand more of, of you know, what I'm talking about, if you want to understand how power works, I highly recommend this book. It's a, it's, it's a little long. It's about 600 pages. I think I, I did the audiobook for it, and it was very good. All right, let's move on to questions. 
All right, let's move on to answering some questions. These are from TikTok users. This one is from, who, what's their name? Let me see here. User 638-294-6601. How do you deal with letting a young person know they are going to die? How do you handle those emotions and not let it spill over into your own life? So thanks for this question. It's a good question. So my, when I tell patients they're going to die, it's a different role than like an outpatient doctor, right? I'm an inpatient critical care doctor. And so I usually get patients that are pretty sick. And often they know that they're sick. Maybe they've had chronic diseases. Maybe they had leukemia or they've had, you know, long-term cancer and they're kind of approaching the end. So it may not be as big of a shock or surprise to them or the family if I tell them. Now, if you're an outpatient oncologist, you know, you're a cancer doctor, it's a different thing. And it's a much, in my opinion, it's a harder job that they have because they need to prognosticate way far out. And, and they, you know, they may have good data, maybe it's not as robust, but they, they make these estimates like, oh, you know, typically patients live between three to five years with this or something like that. And the younger a patient is, obviously, that's much more difficult to say. For me, if I have a younger patient who has a terminal illness, I, and I tell them that they're gonna, that they're gonna die. So how do you deal with that? I don't have any tricks, I just do it. Um, you develop heart, you develop thick skin, you do not internalize these things. And I go home and I don't think about it again. Now, that's not totally true. And I know that can sound callous, but I, I get these things out of my brain. I get them off my back. When I go home, I try to not, I cannot deal with the, the, the human, you know, uh, mass tragedy that happens to me at work every day and internalize all that stuff. I couldn't do this every day. So uh, it, I don't know how I don't let it spill over into my own life, but I just, I just cut it off when I leave the door. Um, and honestly, repetition helps when you do that after you've done this over and over again, it becomes, again, it sounds callous, but I, I don't know how else to put it. It becomes routine telling someone that, that they're going to die. It becomes routine. It is a routine part of my job and I do it without hesitation. I don't need to like psych myself up. I don't need to like, what am I going to say? I used to be like that, you know, early on in my career, but now I just, you just say it, you just state the facts. You just, you're just transparent. You're honest and offer your simple condolences. You don't need to, you don't need to be all, you know, wax philosophical just offer your simple condolences state the facts and uh you know ask if they have any questions and then give them time that's that's how you do it there's no magic to it all right next uh question is from this is on tiktok this is from at underscore forever danxious underscore uh this person's question is and this is relevant to what we're our topic today what is fentanyl versed uh, midazolam meant to do to someone under conscious sedation sedatives slash pain meds don't seem to work and i'm sick of raw dogging procedures lol so i for one thing i love the expression raw dog i think it's hilarious um so what she said what this she i think or or they what they're saying is um you know the this fentanyl midaz combo does doesn't cut cut it for for them and they're sick of like being awake and experiencing a procedure so so for this i don't know what procedure this person had but for their procedures, it doesn't work for them. So they need to have that conversation with their surgeon beforehand, being like, look, this doesn't work. I need more. And advocate for more. And advocate for, hey, maybe I need an anesthetist there that can is able to dose more. So that maybe it didn't work for this person because the, the sedation nurse uh, wasn't dosing more because, uh, because they were afraid of respiratory depression or things like that. So kind of rele- relevant for what I was talking about. So if you've had this experience with anesthesia before, I recommend don't just throw up your hands and be like, that's how it is. Advocate for yourself, being like, I don't want to go through this experience again. What are you going to do? What are you going to do to make this better for me? I need to know. What is the plan? All right. Anyway, I think we'll uh, call it a day there. Um, thanks for listening. If you've made it this far, thanks for listening to this podcast and my my ramblings, uh, my echo chamber. 
that I have here. Um, if you have questions, so I will prioritize ask, asking questions to my podcast listeners. So, and if, so if you, if you're listening to this and you want a question, I, I will answer it. I will prioritize it over TikTok questions. And so you, I will, and I'll answer it for my email. So email icudoctorecmo at gmail, icudoctorecmo, E-C-M-O at gmail, and be like, hey, I love the podcast. I have a question. And if you do that, I, I, it's, you have a high chance that I'm going to answer your question on the podcast. I will prioritize that answering questions then over TikTok. Um, so, so do that. And then you can follow me on TikTok. It's at icudoctor, and I'm on Instagram at uh, icudoctortiktok. Uh, yeah, give me suggestions. Let me know what else rate and review this podcast and share it with others. Thank you. I'll see you next time.